Section 1 of The Rover, Volume 1, Number 25. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rover, Volume 1, Number 25, edited by Seba Smith and Lawrence Labrie. Section 1. The Pool of Bethesda by Seba Smith Unto the holy city came Judea's hapless sons and daughters, the paralytic, blind and lame, to seek Bethesda's healing waters. An angel o'er the fountain moved with kindly power from day to day, and he that first its virtues proved was healed, and forthwith went his way. Amid the throng that waited there, Judea's hapless sons and daughters, a patient Hebrew many a year had watched the angel-troubled waters, and often at the healing hour he feebly toward the fountain bore him, but all too late to feel its power, for one had always stepped before him. A stranger came and gazed a while on him who there in anguish lay, then kindly said with holy smile, Hebrew, arise and go thy way. As forth into the world that hour with footsteps light the Hebrew trod, I felt, he cried, the Almighty's power. I've heard the voice of God. End of section one. Recording by Alan Mapstone. Section 2 of The Rover, Volume 1, Number 25. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Ginny Rosario. The Rover, Volume 1, Number 25. Edited by Seba Smith and Lawrence Labrie. Section 2. Yankee Notions by Samuel Kettle. Boston? Boston? Seems to me I've heard that name before. Very likely you have, dear reader. I heard of it years and years ago. It's a very considerable sort of a place, I assure you. Well, it's quite a pretty picture anyhow, but isn't Boston a sort of Yankee place? Yes, to be sure it is. Boston is to the universal Yankee nation what London is to the universal British Empire. Boston is the headquarters of Yankee land, and embodies the pure spirit of Yankeeism, the very quintessence, purified, boiled down, refined. There is no place in the world more refined, but it is Yankee refinement. There is no place more learned, but it is Yankee learning, sound, practical, and very diffusive, pervading the whole body politic. There is no place of its age more wealthy, and that is the result of what is commonly called Yankee Enterprise. Well now, Mr. Editor, what sort of folks is these Yankees? I've often heard tell of them, but do give us a little insight into their character. Well, here's a clever chapter by a clever writer, direct to the point. Take it and read it at your leisure. Yankee Notions by Samuel Kettle Yankee Land or the New England portion of the United States, does not make a great figure in the map of the American Republic, 
yet the traveler who leaves it out of his route can tell little what the americans are it is in new england that you find jonathan at home in the other states there is a mixture greater or less of foreign population but in new england the population is homogeneous and native the emigrant does not settle there the country is too full of people while the more fertile soil of the west holds out superior attractions to the stranger it is no lubberland there is no getting half a dollar a day for sleeping in massachusetts or vermont the rocky soil and rough climate of this region require thrift and industry in the occupant in the west he may scratch the ground throw in the seed and leave the rest to nature but here his toil must never be remitted and as valor comes of sherris so doth prosperity come of industry while the yankees are themselves they will hold their own let politics twist about as they will they are like cats throw them up as you please they will come down upon their feet shut their industry out from one career and it will force itself into another dry up twenty sources of their prosperity and they will open twenty more they have a perseverance that will never languish while anything remains to be tried they have a resolution that will try anything if need be and when a yankee says i'll try the thing is done it is remarkable that the descendants of the rigid and as we are apt to call them bigoted puritans should have become the most tolerant in religion of all the american people there is a liberty of conscience it is true throughout the union but religious prejudice is mighty in many parts in boston the severe and straight-laced calvinism of former times has disappeared the unitarians now form the largest sect in the city and as is well known number in their ranks some of the ablest men in the western world with this sect there is no intolerance the opposing sects have learned forbearance from their example and the odium theologicum has lost its bitterness here the yankee is cool cautious and calculating he wants a reason for everything an old prejudice is no obstacle in his way of improvement his opinions must rest upon solid tangible ground his religion must be a religion of the understanding he is not credulous he is not enthusiastic there are no catholics in new england save a few foreigners and there never will be any a new englander is eminently a religious man but his religion never will be a religion of ceremonies in european countries he that is born a peasant will be a peasant all his life his chance of forming an exception to the rule is exceedingly small but on beholding the most rustical clown of all yankee land it would not be safe to affirm that he would not be numbered at some future day among the most eminent men of the country there is no burying a man of genius here the humblest birth shuts out no one either from the hopes or the facilities of rising to that station for which his native talent has qualified him rare indeed is it to find an individual who cannot read and write every one has therefore that modicum of knowledge placed within his reach which will enable him to obtain more should his wishes aspire clowns properly speaking there are none among the yankees a yankee is emphatically a civil man though his civility may not produce all the bows and grimaces and unmeaning compliments which accompany or constitute that quality among the french 
rudeness of manners could be charged against these people only by those who know nothing about them countries says goldsmith wear very different appearances to persons in different circumstances a traveller who has whirled through europe in a post-chaise and a pilgrim who walks the grand tour on foot will form very different conclusions now sundry people have been whirled from boston to new york in a mail-coach and said i know not what about manners i have travelled over the new england states on foot over highways and byways supped in the most splendid hotels and the most paltry inns entered every farmer's door that offered as a resting-place and crossed any man's garden or cornfield or orchard that lay in my way without receiving an uncivil word on my whole route on one occasion i lost myself in the woods among the green mountains of vermont where i imagined there was no living creature to be encountered for miles except black bears catamounts and similar country gentlemen but on a sudden i emerged from the wood into an open spot where stood a log hut a little flaxen-headed urchin espied me coming and began to scramble with all speed to hide himself as i supposed but no it was to gain the summit of an immense log of wood which lay by the little pathway where he greeted me as i passed with as profound a bow as i ever received in travelling over the kingdom of naples and contemplating the wonders of that favoured land its fertile soil its genial climate its admirable capacities for commerce and the sloth and ignorance of its population its beggars and its brigands i have been struck with the whimsical imagination of the scene that might ensue were a plain yankee taken from his plough-tail and placed on the throne of the two sicilies his majesty would begin a regular overhaul of the whole body politic the morning after his coronation what's this i see says the king where are your overseers of the highways your school committees your selectmen what idle fellows are these in the streets what are these bells ringing for every day what means this crowd of ships lying behind the mole with nothing to do or this marina the water's edge of my great city where i see no piles of merchandise no trucks nor dray carts driving about with goods nor half the business doing in a month that is done on boston long wharf in two hours come bustle occupy set the lazzaroni to work upon the roads send the children to school make a railroad here and a turnpike there bridge this river and canal that hang the calabrian robbers give the monks a rouse go into the churches and strip me those trumpery shrines sell the gold and silver jewels with which they are heaped and the interest of the money will support all the poor in the kingdom for i'll have no beggars nor idlers while my title is jonathan the first people shall mind their business for i will abolish these festas which come every other day and are good for nothing but to promote idleness henceforth there shall be no festas but fast thanksgiving and independence set me up a newspaper in every town take me the census of the population fine every district that don't send a representative to the general court i'll have everything thrashed and sent a bucking even to the vernacular speech for dulce farniente shall be routed from the italian End of section two.
Section three of The Rover, Volume one, number twenty five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Greg Giordano. The Rover, Volume one, number twenty five. Edited by Seba Smith and Lawrence Labrie section three the little hunchbacked girl by elizabeth oakes smith oh mother said little ellen bursting into tears and throwing her head into her mother's lap how happy i am that there is a heaven and i wish i could go to it now now dear mother mrs g took the child in her arms hardly able to speak for tears she well knew the many trials to which her unoffending daughter was subjected and she felt for her as none but mothers similarly situated can feel what has happened to disturb my dear who has spoken harshly to you no one no one mother and i never minded much when the little girls do call me names they don't mean any hurt but oh mother how i might be loved were i as beautiful as my cousin mary aunt says i am a better child more gentle and kind but everybody loves cousin mary the moment they see her and they smile upon her and often kiss her this morning mary and i were playing together and a lady passed by with a sweet pleasant face i loved her as soon as i saw her she stopped and praised mary's pretty ringlets and bright eyes and kissed her rosy cheeks and then she looked pitifully at me and said poor child then mother i could not keep from weeping and and she gave me some money she couldn't love me so she gave me money ellen ellen said the widow in the bitterness of feeling you will break my heart mother will you take the money and buy some clothes for little john who comes to the door to beg i shall never bear to think of it and now mother i will read and not feel unhappy any more i am afraid it troubled mary to see you so much grieved had you not better go and speak to her my dear not now mother i am afraid she don't love me as well as i do her when i turned to come away she said what a fool you are to feel so ellen the lady might in welcome have given you the kisses had she given me the money i shouldn't mind having a hunchback if people would give me money poor mary i'm afraid her beauty will be her ruin would you not rather be as you are dear ellen than feel as mary does yes indeed mother but i have tried to feel and think 
what you say is true that the good are always loved but mother you are mistaken beauty is loved people hardly ever think of goodness my dear people cannot tell how you think they regard you as a mere child i love you because you are a good and dutiful child when you are older others will love you because you will be amiable useful and pious and remember my dear that our father above can see within you a soul far more beautiful than the body of your cousin mary and in a few years this covering of the body will be dropped and we shall all see each other not the bodies but that part which is truly really ourselves and then my dear goodness will be beauty cannot my daughter wait patiently for that time yes mother yes so long as i have you to love but i cannot stay long to be loved by none but you and pitied by all beside my love you will think less of the opinion of the world as you live longer you will feel that we are placed here to do good to our fellow-creatures and be prepared for a better world but mother can i ever stay to be as old as you are i love the little birds and the green trees and pretty flowers but still the world looks cold and dark and i want to be away my dear you must wait our father's time though your body is homely and deformed god has made your spirit perfect and that you know will never die while the most beautiful body will soon crumble to dust think my dear of the great blessings you have received and do not repine for those that are withholden i will mother and be grateful to god for giving me such a mother who has taught me to be patient and contented under my trials i might have been ill-natured and envied dear cousin mary for her beauty had god given me a different mother the widow pressed her close and closer to her heart and the child and mother wept long and bitterly ellen many and many have been the tears i have shed over you in your infancy for i well knew if your life were spared all these trials awaited you but my prayers that you might be blessed with a spirit to bear them have been answered your good aunt with her beautiful mary is a less happy mother than me ellen i will be patient and happy dear mother that i may grieve you no more said little ellen throwing her arms about her mother's neck poor ellen was scarcely eight years old she had been subjected from her infancy to the thoughtless taunts of her young companions 
and even when they forbore their unkind and inconsiderate remarks they often indirectly and unconsciously wounded her sensitive nature and helped to break her young and gentle spirits she was indeed sorely stricken her body was stinted and deformed and her face with the exception of a very sweet and intelligent expression was remarkably plain she became thoughtful affectionate and contemplative and dwelt so much on the holiness and happiness of heaven that she longed to lay her down and die the widow felt that the desire of the child would be gratified she saw her little frame wasting away and a bright unnatural fire gathering in her eye while her countenance sometimes wore an expression almost of beauty her young spirit seemed already disenthralled from every earthly passion and feeling and glowed with an intensity of love a stretch of intellect and depth of thought that seemed almost supernatural her sufferings were so slight she was able almost to the last to go about the house and busy herself with her books and flowers a few moments before her death she laid herself upon the sofa saying mother i am weary and will sleep the mother felt it was her last sleep she kissed her cheek ellen opened her eyes and looked up mother you will be all alone when i am gone but i shall be so happy you won't wish me back dear mother how very good our father in heaven is to let me go so soon she half raised her little arms as if to embrace her mother they fell back little ellen had left the body mrs g felt she was indeed a widowed and childless woman but she scarcely wept she lived many years like one who felt she was a stranger and a pilgrim here administering to the sick and relieving the wretched and was at length buried by the side of her beloved husband and ellen end of section three read by greg giordano newport ritchie florida section four of the rover volume one number twenty five this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org, read by Ginny Rosario, The Rover, Volume One, Number Twenty Five, edited by Seba Smith and Lawrence Labrie. Section Four: The Broken Miniature. Two young officers belonging to the same regiment aspired to the hand of the same young lady. We will conceal their real names under those of Albert and Horace. Two youths more noble never saw the untarnished colors of their country wave over their heads, or took more undaunted hearts into the field, 
or purer forms, or a more polished address into the drawing-room. Yet was there a marked difference in their characters, and each wore his virtues so becomingly, and one of them at least concealed his vices so becomingly also, that the maiden, who saw them both, was puzzled where to give the preference, and stood, as it were, between two flowers of very opposite colors, and perfumes, and yet each of equal beauty. Horace, who was the superior officer, was more commanding in his figure than, but not so beautiful in his features, as Albert. Horace was the more vivacious, but Albert spoke with more eloquence upon all subjects. If Horace made the most agreeable companion, Albert made the better friend. Horace did not claim the praise of being sentimental, nor Albert the fame of being jovial. Horace laughed the more with less wit, and Albert was the most witty with less laughter. Horace was the more nobly born, yet Albert had the better fortune, the mind that could acquire, and the circumspection that could preserve one. Whom of the two did Matilda prefer? Yes, she had a secret, an undefined preference, yet did inclinations walk so sisterly hand in hand with her duties that her spotless mind could not divide them from each other she talked the more of horace yet thought the more of albert as yet neither of the aspirants had declared himself sir oliver matilda's father soon put the matter at rest he had his private and family reasons for wishing horace to be the favoured lover but as he by no means wished to lose to himself and to his daughter the valued friendship of a man of probity and of honour he took a delicate method of letting albert understand that everything he possessed his grounds his house and all that belonged to them were at his service he accepted only his daughter when the two soldiers called and they were in the habit of making their visits together sir oliver had always some improvements to show albert some dog for him to admire or some horse for him to try and even in wet weather there was never wanting a manuscript for him to decipher so that he was sure to take him out of the room or out of the house and leave horace alone with his daughter uttering some disparaging remark in a jocular tone to the effect that horace was only fit to dance attendance upon the ladies albert understood all this and submitted he did not strive to violate the rights of hospitality to seduce the affections of the daughter and outrage the feelings of the father he was not one of those who would enter the temple of beauty and under the pretense of worshipping at the shrine destroy it a commonplace lover might have done so but albert had no commonplace mind but did he not suffer oh that he suffered and suffered acutely his altered looks his heroic silence and at times his forced gaiety too plainly testified he kept his flame in the inmost recess of his heart like a lamp in a sepulchre and which lighted up the ruins of his happiness alone to his daughter sir oliver spoke more explicitly her affections had not been engaged, and the slightest preference that she began to feel stealing into her heart for Albert had its nature changed at once. When she found that he could not approach her as a lover, she found to spring up for him in her bosom a regard as sisterly and as ardent as if the same cradle had rocked them both. 
She felt, and her father knew, that Albert's was a character that must be loved, if not as a husband, as a brother. The only point upon which Matilda differed with her father was as to the degree of encouragement. Let us, my dear father, she would entreatingly say, be free at least one year. Let us, for that period, stand committed by no engagement. We are both young, myself extremely so. A peasant maiden would lay a longer probation upon her swain. Do but ask Albert if I am not in the right. The appeal that she made to Albert, which ought to have assured her father of the purity of her sentiments, frightened him into a suspicion of a lurking affection having crept into her bosom. Affairs were at a crisis when Napoleon returned from Elba and burst like the demon of war from a thundercloud upon the plains of France. And all the warlike and the valorous arose and walled her in with their veteran breasts. The returned hero lifted up his red right hand, and the united force of France rushed with him to battle. The regiment of our rivals was ordered to Belgium. After many entreaties from her father, Matilda at length consented to sit for her miniature to an eminent artist. But upon the express stipulation, when it should be given to Horace, that they should still hold themselves free. The miniature was finished, the resemblance excellent, and the exultation and rapture of Horace complete. He looked upon the possession of it, notwithstanding Matilda's stipulation, as an earnest of his happiness. He had the picture set most ostentatiously in jewels, and constantly wore it on his person, and his enemies say that he showed it with more freedom than the delicacy of his situation with respect to Matilda should have warranted. Albert made no complaint. He acknowledged the merit of his rival eagerly, the more eagerly as the rivalship was suspected. The scene must now change. The action at Quarterbras has taken place. The principal body of the British troops are at Brussels, and the news of the rapid advance of the French is brought to Wellington, and the forces are, before the break of day, moved forward. But where is Horace? The column of troops to which he belongs is on the line of march, but Albert, and not he, is at its head. The enemy are in sight. Glory's sun-bright face gleams in the front, while dishonor and infamy scowl in the rear. The orders to charge are given, and the very moment that the battle is about to join, the foaming, jaded, breathless cursor of Horace strains forward as if with a last effort, and seems to have but enough strength to wheel with his rider into his station. A faint huzzah from the troops welcomed their leader. On, ye brave, on! The edges of the battle join. The scream, the shout, the groan, and the volleying thunder of artillery mingled in one deafening roar. The smoke cleared away. The charge is over. The whirlwind has passed. Horace and Albert are both down and the blood wells away from their wounds, and is drunk up by the thirsty earth. But a few days after the eventful battle of Waterloo, Matilda and Sir Oliver were alone in the drawing-room. Sir Oliver had read to his daughter, who was now resting in breathless agitation, the details of the battle, and was now reading down slowly and silently the list of the dead and maimed. "'Can you, my dear girl?' said he, tremulously." bear to hear very bad news she could reply in no other way than by laying her head on her father's shoulder and sobbing out the almost inaudible word read horace is mentioned as having been seen early in the action 
badly wounded and is returned missing. Horrible, exclaimed the shuddering girl, and embracing her father the more closely. And our poor friend Albert is dangerously wounded too, said the father. Matilda made no reply, but as a mass of snow slips down from its supporting, as silent, as pure, and almost as cold, fell Matilda from her father's arms insensibly upon the floor. Sir Oliver was not surprised, but much puzzled. He thought that she had felt quite enough for her lover, but too much for her friend. A few days after, a Belgian officer was introduced by a mutual friend, and was pressed to dine by Sir Oliver. As he had been present at the battle, Matilda would not permit her grief to prevent her meeting him at her father's table. Immediately, as she entered the room, the officer started, and took every opportunity of gazing upon her intently, when he thought himself unobserved. At last he did so, so incautiously, and in a manner so particular, that when the servants had withdrawn, Sir Oliver asked him if he had ever seen his daughter before. "'Assuredly not, but most assuredly her resemblance,' said he, and he immediately produced the miniature that Horace had obtained from his mistress. The first impression of both father and daughter was that Horace was no more, and that the token had been entrusted to the hands of the officer by the dying lover.' but he quickly undeceived them by informing them that he was lying desperately, but not dangerously, wounded at a farmhouse on the continent, and that in fact he had suffered a severe amputation. Then in the name of all that is honorable, how came you by that miniature? exclaimed Sir Oliver. Oh, he had lost it to a notorious sharper at a gaming-house in Brussels, on the eve of the battle, which sharper offered it to me, as he said that he supposed the gentleman from whom he won it would never come to repay the large sum of money for which it was left in pledge. Though I had no personal knowledge of Colonel Horace, yet, as I admired the painting, and saw that the jewels were worth more than he asked for them, I purchased it, really with the hope of returning it to its first proprietor, if he should feel any value for it, either as a family picture or as some pledge of affection, but I have not yet had an opportunity of meeting with him. "'What an insult!' thought Sir Oliver. "'What an escape!' exclaimed Matilda, when the officer had finished his relation. I need not say that Sir Oliver immediately repurchased the picture, and that he had no further thoughts of marrying his daughter to a gamester." "'Talking of miniatures,' resumed the officer, "'a very extraordinary occurrence has just taken place. "'A miniature has actually saved the life of a gallant young officer "'of the same regiment as Horace's, "'as fine a fellow as ever bestrode a charger.' "'His name?' exclaimed Matilda and Sir Oliver together. "'Is Albert, and is the second in command. "'A high fellow, that same Albert.' "'Pray, sir, do me the favor to relate the particulars.' said sir oliver and matilda looked grateful at her father for the request oh i do not know them minutely said he but i believe it was simply that the picture served his bosom as a sort of breastplate and broke the force of a musket-ball but did not however prevent him from receiving a very smart wound the thing was much talked of for a day or two and some joking took place on the subject but when it was seen that these railleries gave him more pain than the wound the subject was dropped and soon seemed to have been forgotten shortly after the officer took his leave the reflections of matilda were bitter her miniature had been infamously lost while the mistress of albert 
of that Albert whom she felt might but for family pride ban her lover was even in effigy, the guardian angel of a life she loved too well. Months elapsed, and Horace did not appear. Sir Oliver wrote to him an intelligent letter and bade him consider all intercourse broken off for the future. He returned a melancholy answer in which he pleaded guilty to this charge, spoke on the madness of intoxication, confessed that he was hopeless and that he deserved to be so. In a word, his letter was so humble, so desponding, and so dispirited that even the insulted Matilda was softened and shed tears over his blighted hopes. And here we must do Horace the justice to say that the miniature was merely left in the hands of the winner, he being a stranger, as a deposit until the next morning, but which the next morning did not allow him to redeem, though it rent from him a limb, and left him as one dead upon the battlefield. Had he not gamed, his miniature would not have been lost to a sharper. The summons to march would have found him at his quarters. His harassed steed would not have failed him in the charge, and, in all probability, his limb would have been saved, and his love have been preserved. A year had now elapsed, and at length Albert was announced. He had heard that all intimacy had been broken off between Horace and Matilda, but nothing more. The story of the lost miniature was confined to the few whom it concerned, and those few wished all memory of it to be buried in oblivion. Something like a hope had returned to Albert's bosom. He was graciously received by the father, and diffidently by Matilda. She remembered the broken miniature, and supposed him to have been long and ardently attached to another. It was on a summer's evening. There was no other company. The sun was just setting in glorious splendor. After dinner, Matilda had retired only to the window to enjoy. She said that prospect that the drawing-room could not afford. She spoke truly, for Albert was not there. Her eyes were upon the declining sun, but her soul was still in the dining-room. At length Sir Oliver and Albert arose from the table, and came and seated themselves near Matilda. "'Come, Albert, the story of the miniature,' said Sir Oliver. "'What? Fully, truly, and unreservedly,' said Albert, looking anxiously at Matilda. "'Of course.' "'Offence or no offence,' said Albert, with a look of arch-meaning." "'Whom could the tale possibly offend?' said Sir Oliver. "'That I am yet to learn. Listen.' As regarded Matilda, the word was wholly superfluous. She seemed to have lost every faculty but hearing. Albert, in a low yet hurried tone, commenced thus. "'I loved, but was not loved. I had a rival that was seductive. I saw that he was preferred by the father, and not indifferent to the daughter. My love I could not.' I would not attempt to conquer, but my actions honor bade me control, and I obeyed. The friend was admitted where the lover would have been banished. My successful rival obtained a miniature of his mistress. Oh, then, I envied and impelled by unconquerable passion. I obtained clandestinely from the artist a facsimile of that which I so much envied him. It was my heart's silent companion, and when at last my duty called me away from the original— not often did I venture to gaze on the resemblance. To prevent my secret being discovered by accident, I had the precious token enclosed in a double locket of gold, which opened by a secret spring, known only to myself and the maker. I gazed on the lovely features on the dawn of the battle day. 
I returned it to its resting place, and my heart throbbed proudly under its pressure. I was conscious that there I had a talisman, and, if ever I felt as heroes feel, it was then. It was then. On, on I dashed through the roaring stream of slaughter. Sabres flashed over and around me. What cared I? I had this on my heart, and a brave man's sword in my hand. And, come the worst, better I could not have died than on that noble field. The shower of faded balls hissed around me. What cared I? I looked around to my fellow soldiers I trusted for victory, and my soul I entrusted to God. And, shall I own it? For a few tears to my memory, I trusted to the original of this, my bosom companion. She must have had a heart of ice, had she refused them, said Matilda, in a voice almost inaudible from emotion. Albert bowed low and gratefully, and thus continued, while I was thus borne forward into the very centre of the struggle, a ball struck at my heart, but the guardian angel was there, and it was protected. The miniature, the double case, even my flesh was penetrated, and my blood soiled the image of that beauty for whose protection it would have joyed to flow. The shattered case, the broken, the blood-stained miniature, are now dearer to me than ever, and so will remain until life shall desert me. "'May I look upon those happy features that inspired and preserved a heart so noble?' said Matilda, in a low, distinct voice, that seemed unnatural to her from the excess of emotion. Albert dropped upon one knee before her, touched the spring, and placed the miniature in the trembling hand of Matilda. In an instant she recognized her own resemblance. She was above the affectation of false modesty. Her eyes filled with grateful tears— she kissed the encrimsoned painting and sobbed aloud, Albert, this shall never leave my bosom. Oh, my well, my long beloved. In a moment, she was in the arms of the happy soldier, while one hung over them with unspeakable rapture, bestowing that best boon upon a daughter's love, a father's heartfelt blessing. End of section four. Section 5 of The Rover, Volume 1, Number 25. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rover, Volume 1, Number 25. Edited by Seba Smith and Lawrence Labry. Section 5. The House of Disaster. In one of the retired corners of Paris, there is to be found a house with a very remarkable traditionary name, La Maison de Malheur des Flamands, which, being translated into English, bears the meaning of the House of Disaster of the Flemings. For centuries the dwelling in question has been familiarly known by this strange appellation, it is now one of the meanest and ugliest structures in the hall of the crowded quarter where it is placed, though it was once one of the finest and richest. The beauties of its elaborately sculptured front of wood and its oaken doors have been defaced and removed by the influence of time, chains, and change. Still, the incidents which connected the mansion with the Flemish people 
and gave to it the title of their house of disaster are not yet consigned to oblivion though they may be known indeed to few of those who have the traditionary designation most commonly in their mouths michel vatremetz a native of flanders was the occupant of this mansion some centuries ago like many other flemings he had come to paris to exercise his trade or profession which was that of transcriber or manufacturer of bibles and he had risen in the course of time to be the most wealthy and famous artisan in that department in the french capital he had fifteen apprentices or assistants who laboured continually in transcribing copies of the sacred writings and also in painting them for the majority of bibles in those days were illuminated as it was called or in other words illustrated by figures painted on the margins the copies executed by these assistants were carefully revised by michel himself that the text might be preserved in perfect correctness in this task vatremetz was always aided by his young and pretty daughter odette who while her father had the new manuscript copy before him read aloud from an old and standard transcription that no forgotten words or mutilated passages might remain unnoticed yet odette herself was often the source and origin of such errors seeing that when she was present the young transcribers were apt not only to make ungainly spots upon the vellum but also to copy incorrectly the words of the work before them though idolized by some of these youths odette however did not expand a thought on them the cause was that she had fixed her whole heart and affections on a stranger a young german who had come to paris and requested work from her father as a transcriber of bibles in making this request he had stated one condition necessary to be conceded here he could accept work from michel vatremetz this condition was that michel should allow him to work at home at his own lodgings michel knowing the professional skill of the germans agreed to the terms of the stranger who left in the other's hands a massive gold chain by way of security for the vellum which he of course received to work upon gaspar Houtz, as the young german was named in place of passing the whole of his daily time in toiling like the rest of michel's operatives seemed as if he had little else to do but to walk about and enjoy himself like a gentleman of fortune with his handsome person elegantly attired he strolled much about the city viewing all its curiosities and wonders he even came often to the very workshop of michel vatremetz and there seated on the corner of a table he smiled upon odette and murmured in her ear words which were to her a lasting pleasure and a trouble every now and then on making these visits gaspar Houtz would carry off some of the apprentices with him to supper and entertain them gallantly all this sort of work master michel vatremetz noticed and internally felicitated himself 
on having in pledge the chain of Gaspard, as the vellum which the latter had got seemed to the Fleming to be most decidedly lost. In this conclusion he was far wrong. Scarcely had one month passed away when Gaspard Houts arrived one morning with his Bible finished. Never had the characters presented such regularity, never had there been fewer errors in any copy. As he counted out his golden crowns, Michel shook his head and exclaimed, This Bible, young man, was surely never wrote by your hands. A whole year would scarce have sufficed for such labour in the hands of the most experienced workman, and you bring it complete in a month. The work is so certainly mine, said Gaspard, that I will produce another here fifteen days be over. Michel accepted the offer. In fifteen days the young German produced a second Bible, not less perfect than the first. Old Vatremetz had found in the first Bible but three errors, and in the second he found the very same. But this did not strike Michel with any great surprise, as he knew how apt the end is to get into the habit of making fixed slips. At the end of a year, Gaspar had furnished to Michel thirty, being as much work as thirty other workmen could have executed. On account of this new and every way superior source of supply, Watermetz dismissed several of his ordinary assistants, who in consequence were discontented and menaced Gaspar with their bitterest vengeance. After the connection had subsisted for the time mentioned, Michel proposed that Gaspar Houts should come and reside at his house. Gaspar yielded to this request the more willingly because he loved Odette tenderly and deeply, and because she had acknowledged an equal affection for him in return. The unsuspicious young German was not aware of the motives of the old Fleming for giving the invitation. Michel had become perfectly assured that Gaspard's Bibles were not transcribed by him as they were done by others. He saw that there was a secret, a mystery, and it was to have it in his power to act as a spy on Gaspard, that he brought the latter to stay with him. When that step had been for some time effected, the old Fleming watched Gaspard by night and by day. The young German said always that he wrote while others slept, and in reality a lamp was kept continually burning in his chamber. But Vatromets soon discovered this to be a mere feint by watching at the youth's chamber door. Gaspard was always motionless in fact, asleep. Not being able to penetrate the mystery notwithstanding all these discoveries, Michel began openly to press the young man for an explanation, till at length Gaspard said, Well, it is true there is a secret, a secret which may make the fortune of any man, or perhaps of two men. Give me your daughter Rodette's hand, and I will tell you my secret. 
and we may soon become rich enough to require to sell no more Bibles. Gaspard received the old man's promise, and then told him that a wonderful art had been invented in Germany, which enabled anyone to produce Bibles and other books with inconceivable rapidity, and that the mobility of the stamps or characters employed permitted the easy correction of any blunder. I have yet thirty Bibles thus made, said Gaspard, in the keeping of a friend. I may have a hundred whenever I wish them from the same friend who made the others. Not daring to sell the works myself, because they here punish as magical all they do not comprehend, I applied to you and became ostensibly a transcriber. Gaspard, at the same time, told Michel that the name of the fabricator of the Bibles was Schaeffer, and pointed out the means which had been established for carrying on a correspondence with him, and procuring as many Bibles as might be required, at such a price as would leave the second vendors a princely profit. Michel only consented to the immediate marriage of Gaspard and Odette on receiving a load of Bibles, which had been sent for from Schaeffer, who lived without the bounds of France. Thus satisfied, all Vatremets gave permission for the celebration of the wedding within eight days. But two or three mornings ere the day came, one of Michel's former apprentices entered his house magnificently dressed and informed the old Fleming that he, the apprentice, had recently got a handsome fortune by the death of a relation, that his father had just been named master of the merchants, and that he himself had come to place his wealth and hand at the disposal of Odette. The dark shade in Vatrumetz's composition was avarice. He grew pale at the thought of being under the necessity of renouncing an alliance with so rich a family, with the son of the chief of the merchants. Almost audibly, he cursed the cause of this, poor Gaspard. Gaspard, cried the enraged apprentice, comprehending the truth at once. What, have I a rival in Gaspard, the miserable wretch who has sold his soul to the devil for the power of multiplying manuscripts? The end of justice hangs over him, and will crush him soon. You, too, were accused of being as accomplice, Michel. Happily, through my father's credit, I got the charge against you suppressed. But as for Gaspard, nothing can save him. All this, unhappily, proved but too real. Gaspard Houts was seized and cast into prison, and the charge against him was supported by the former workmen of Vatremetz. In vain did the poor young German invoke the testimony of Michel. Michel kept an obstinate silence. In vain did Gaspard wish that his own explanations should be heard. The cry of his judges was, The torture! Confess! And when subjected to the horrors of the question, poor human nature sank under it, and to ensure a speedy death, and the cessation of his agonies, Gaspard Houts admitted his association with the devil.
he was condemned to death and also to make an amende honorable before his execution in front of the house of Michel Vatremetz, whom he had endeavoured, his judges said, to implicate in a manner where the Fleming was perfectly guiltless. All the Bibles which had been found in Gaspard's possession were given to the convent of the Benedictine, who exercised, blessed, and then sold them for high sums. When the day of execution came, Gaspard Outs was carried to the front of the house of Michel Vatremetz, and there the cavalcade stopped. The doomed youth arose from his seat, pale and wasted, with his irons rattling still on his limbs. But in place of making the expected amende, which the solemnity of the ceremonial had compelled Michel to appear for the purpose of listening to, Gaspard exclaimed, I am the victim of treachery and ingratitude, and this thou knowest well, Michel Vatremetz, who art here to listen to me, and who strugglest to appear composed. Glad wouldst thou have been, had my judges spared thee this last interview, but I am here to say farewell, and to give thee thanks. Woe upon that house! continued Gaspard, raising his hand and pointing to the dwelling of Michel. Woe upon it! I need not say woe upon thee, Michel Vatremetz, for it is come already on thee and thine, but woe upon all thy race who shall enter or dwell beneath that roof, for ever and ever. Now, lead on to the funeral pile." Three months afterward, Michel Vatremetz wept and tore his hair over the tomb of a broken-hearted girl, his daughter, his only daughter. Six months afterward, a fire destroyed the dwelling and all the effects of Michel Vatremetz. The growing insanity or fatuity of the old Fleming was the cause of the fire, and by the same agency he was soon brought to the streets where he passed the remainder of his days a beggar and an idiot. The prediction of Gaspard Houts was certainly strangely realized by this and other events that signalized the future history of the house of Michel Patramest. Being a spot where Flemings loved to abide in the same manner as we find localities taken up by Jews and by other particular races, the dwelling under notice was repeatedly inhabited by Flemings after the occurrence of the events related. Eleven Flemings, says the tradition of the neighbourhood, came successively to occupy the Maison de Malheur des Flamands, and of all the eleven, not one escaped a sudden and violent end. Some who have paid especial attention to the circumstances and enumerate the various modes in which the doom fell upon the inhabitants of the house of woe. One perished by assassination, another by the waters of the Seine, a third was broken on the wheel, a fourth died within the walls of starvation, and so on.
one of the last of the unfortunate Flemings who tenanted the house of disaster, was Jean-Paul Labadie, a man whose fate was particularly hard, and who lived so recently that his story could have been authenticated but a short time ago by living persons. He was a flourishing man. A large sum of money which he had brought with him from his native Flanders had been embarked by him in trade, which he carried on in La Maison de Malheur. He married a most beautiful girl, who commonly received the title of the Belle of the Neighbourhood. But soon after his marriage he was arrested and thrown into the Bastille. There he lay for twenty years, totally ignorant of the crime for which he was thus punished. At length a great person who chanced to visit his cell was seized with pity, and got Jean-Paul liberated when he learned for the first time the cause of his confinement. A court marquis had seen and admired his wife, and had taken the way related of getting the husband disposed of. Subsequently, Jean-Paul had merely lain in prison because the Marquis had utterly forgot him. These stories of misfortune befalling the occupants of the fated house may be connected or not by our readers, just as they please, with the dying words of Gaspard Houts. We have our own ideas about the matter, and, no doubt, they will also have theirs. Enough has been said, however, to explain satisfactorily the origin of the name of the Fleming's House of Disaster. End of section 5 Read by Little Miss Clumsy Section 6 of The Rover, Volume 1, Number 25. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rover, Volume 1, Number 25. Edited by Seba Smith and Lawrence Labrie. Section 6. The Free Rover by w h carpenter a horseman a horseman he travels with speed the fathomless wave on a marvellous steed and the wind as it whistles his raven locks through but dashes his cheek with a ruddier hue and the rain storm and lightning though fierce they may be are co-mates and playmates he loveth to see the tempest the tempest what wrecks he is wroth or mountains storm-lifted he holds on his path though the heavens are black with the murkiest rack and the foam and the spray hiss around on his track he calls for a beaker and fills to the brim for danger to others is pastime to him a monarch a monarch he standeth alone the ocean his empire a good ship his throne with rude swarthy vassals that wait his command to ravage with fire or harry with brand or gather in tributes whence tribute is due of silks from the indies or gold from peru 
a vessel a vessel is cleaving the brine an oath swore the rover and washed it with wine who races with me must be sparing of breath the fly if he fights he but wrestles with death and the white-livered coward dispatched with a blow but ushers the fates of the sturdier foe a praying a cursing are borne on the blast a moment are heard in a moment are past a surge and a shriek and the waters roll over the pale fools who dared to dispute with the rover ho ho quoth the monarch in blood to his knee more food for the maul of the ravenous sea end of section six recording by alan mapstone section seven of the rover volume one number twenty five this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox dot org the rover volume one number twenty five edited by seba smith and lawrence labrie section seven the sisters a tale for the ladies from tales of the borders by james mackey wilson there is not a period of deeper luxury and delight than the season when the nightingale raises its charmed voice to welcome the pleiades and the glorious spring like the spirit of life riding upon sunbeams breathes upon the earth yielding to its renewing influence the feelings and the fancies of youth rushed back upon our heart in all their holiness freshness and exultation and we feel ourselves a deathless part of the joyous creation which is glowing around us in beauty beneath the smile of his god who has seen the foliage of ten thousand trees bursting into leaves each kissed by a dewdrop who has beheld a hundred flowers of varied hues expanding into loveliness stealing their colours from the rainbowed majesty of the morning sun who has listened to melody from the yellow firs to music from every bush heard the birds sing love on every spray and gazed on the blue sky of his own beautiful land swimming like a singing sea around the sun who has seen who has heard these and not been ready to kneel upon the soil that gave him birth who has not then as all nature lived and breathed and shouted their hymns of glory around him held his breath in quivering delight and felt the presence of his own immortality the assurance of his soul's eternal duration and wondered that sin should exist upon a world so beautiful but this moralizing keeps us from our narrative on one of the most lovely mornings of the season we have mentioned several glad groups were seen tripping lightly toward the cottage of peggy johnstone peggy was the widow of a border farmer who died young but left her as the phrase runs well to do in the world she had two daughters both in the pride of their young womanhood and the sun shone not on a lovelier pair both were graceful as the lilies that bowed their heads to the brook which ran near their cottage door and both were mild modest and retiring 
as the wee primrose that peeped forth beside the threshold both were that morning by the consent of their mother to bestow their hands upon the objects of their young affections but we will not dwell upon their bridal only a few short months were passed when their mother was summoned into the world where the weary are at rest on her deathbed she divided unto them equal portions consisting of a few hundreds their mourning for her loss which for a time was mingled with bitterness gradually passed away and long years of happiness appeared to welcome them from the bosom of futurity the husbands of both were in business and resided in a market-town in cumberland the sisters names were helen and margaret and if a preference could have been given margaret was the most lovely and gentle of the two but before the tree that sheltered her hopes had time to blossom the serpent gnawed its roots and it withered like the gourd of the angry prophet her dark eyes lost their lustre and the tears ran down her cheeks where the roses had perished for ever she spoke but there was none to answer her she sighed but there was no comforter save the mournful voice of echo her young husband sat carousing in the midst of his boon companions where the thought of a wife or of home never enters and night following night beheld them reel forth into the streets to finish their debauch in a house of shame such were the miserable midnights of margaret the beautiful and meek while helen beheld every day increasing her felicity in the care and affection of her temperate husband she was the world to him and he all that that world contained to her and often as gloaming fell grey around them still would they sit and look into each other's eyes silent and happy as if god had given naught else worth looking at on this side heaven a few years passed over them but hope visited not the dwelling of poor margaret her husband had sunk into the habitual drunkard and not following his business his business had ceased to follow him and his substance was become a wreck and she so late the fairest of the fair was now a dejected and broken-hearted mother herself and her children in rags a prey to filthiness and disease sitting in a miserable hovel stripped alike of furniture and the necessities of life where the wind and the rain whistled and drifted through the broken windows to her each day the sun shone upon misery while her children were crying around her for bread and quarrelling with each other and she now weeping in the midst of them and now cursing the wretched man to whom they owed their being daily did the drunkard reel from his haunt of debauchery into his den of wretchedness then did the stricken children crouch behind their miserable mother for protection as his red eyes glared upon their famished cheeks but she now met his rage with her silent scowl of heart-broken and callous defiance which tending but to inflame the infuriated madman then then burst forth the more than fiendish clamour of domestic war and then was heard upon the street the children's shriek the screams and the bitter revilings 
of the long-patient wife with the cruel imprecations and unnatural blasphemies of the monster for whom language has no name as he rushed forward putting cowardice to the blush and with his clenched hand struck to the ground amidst the children she bore him the once gentle and beautiful being he had sworn before god to protect she whom once he would not permit the winds of heaven to visit her cheeks too roughly she who would have thought her life cheap to have laid it down in his service he kicked from him like a disobedient dog these are the everyday changes of drinking habitually these are the transformations of temperance turn we now to the fireside of the happier helen the business of the day is done and her sober husband returns homeward and he perceives his fair children eagerly waiting his approach while delight beams from his eyes contentment plays upon his lips and he stretches out his hand to welcome them while the expectin wee things toddlin stature through to meet their dad with flickerin noise and glee his wee bit ingle blinkin bonnily his clean hearth stain and thrifty wife's smile does a uh, his weary irkin cares beguile and make him quite forget his labour and his toil and while the youngling climbed his knees the envy kissed to share the elder brothers and sisters throng around him eager to repeat their daily and sabbath school tasks and obtain as their reward the fond pressure of a father's hand and behold exultation and affection sparkling from his eyes while the happy mother sat by plying her needle and gowering old clay's look amazed as wheels the new and gazed upon the scene before her with a rapture none but mothers know here there was no crying or wailing for food no quarrellings no blasphemies but the cheerful supper done the voice of psalms was heard in solemn sounds the book of god was opened the father knelt and his children bent their knees around him and could an angel gaze upon a more delightful scene than an infant kneeling by the side of its mother gazing in her face and lisping amen as the words fell from its father's lips surely surely as he flew to registered in heaven a prayer hearing god would respond so let it be again must we view the opposite picture the unhappy drunkard deprived of the means of life in his native town wandered with his family to edinburgh but on him no reformation dawned and the wretched margaret hurried onward by despair before the smoothness of youth had left the brow of her sister was overtaken by age its wrinkles and infirmities and all the affections all the feelings of her once gentle nature being seared by long years of insult misery brutality and neglect she herself flew to the bottle and became tenfold more the victim of depravity than her fallen abandoned husband she lived to behold her children break the laws of their country and to be utterly forsaken by her husband and in the depth of her misery she was seen quarrelling with a dog upon the street for a bare bone that had been cast out with the ashes of the extent of her sufferings or where to find her her sister knew not but in the midst of a severe winter the once beautiful margaret johnston was found a hideous and a frozen corpse in a miserable cellar last scene of all which ends this strange eventful history upon helen and her husband 
age descended imperceptibly as the calm twilight of a lovely evening when the stars steal out and the sunbeams die away as a holy stillness glides through the air like the soft breathings of an angel unfolding from his celestial wings the silken curtains of a summer night and the conscious earth kissed by the balmy spirit dreams and smiles and smiling dreams itself into the arms of night and of repose four score winters passed over them their heads became white with the snow of years but they became old together they half forgot the likeness of the face of their youth but still the heart of youth with its imperishable affections and esteem throbbed in either bosom smiling calmly upon time and its ravages and still in the eyes of the happy old man his silver-haired partner seemed as young as fair and as beautiful as when in the noontide of her loveliness she blushed to him her vows their children have risen around them and call them blessed and they have beheld those children esteemed and honoured in society end of section seven section eight of the rover volume one number twenty five this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. The Rover, Volume 1, Number 25, edited by Seba Smith and Lawrence Labrie. Section 8. Isolated Affection by W. G. Sims. True love, still born of heaven, is blessed with wings, and tired of earth it plumes them back again, and thus we lose it deep in the bosom of a southern forest there grew a beautiful flower the sweetest flower in that lonely region its leaves were of the purest white for the first time unfolding to the world around and revealing as they did so the fine and delicate droppings of violet and purple which before like so much hidden wealth had lain in its bosom its odor was fresh and exquisite and no flower in all that forest could come near it for sweetness or for beauty. In excellence, as in condition, it was equally alone. But it was not destined to be alone always. There came to it one morning in May a golden butterfly, a rover among the flowers, an ancient robber of their sweets. Gaily he plied his flight throughout the forest, now here and now there, sporting about in a sort of errant unconsciousness. It was not long before he inhaled the odor. It was not long before he saw the pure white leaves and looked down with an anxious eye upon the rich droppings of purple and violet which nestled in the bosom of the flower. Flying around in mazy but still contracting circles, he gazed upon the loveliness of the flower and grew more and more enamored at each moment of his survey. Surely, he thought, this is a flower by itself, love's own flower, dwelling in secret, blooming only and budding for his eyes and denied to all beside. It is my good fortune to have found it, I will drink, I will nestle in its bosom, I will enjoy its charms as I have enjoyed a thousand others. 
Even with the thought came the quick resolution, and another moment found him lying, lying close and pressed upon the bosom of the flower. There was a slight effort to escape from the embraces of the intruder. The flower murmured its dissent, but the murmur died away into a sigh, was inhaled as so much honey by the pressing lips of the butterfly. He sung to the flower of his love, he the acknowledged rover, the unlicensed drinker of sweets, the economical winner of affections with which he did not share his own. He sung to the flower a story of his love, and oh, saddest of all, the young flower believed him. And day after day he came to the stolen embrace, and day after day, more fondly than ever, the lovely flower looked forth to receive him. She surrendered her very soul to his keeping, and her pure white leaves grew tinged with his golden ringlets, while his kisses stained with yellow the otherwise delicate loveliness of her lips. But she heeded not this. So long as the embrace was still fervent, the kiss still warm, the return of the butterfly still certain. But when was love certain? Not often where the lover is a butterfly. There came a change over the habits of the butterfly. He gradually fell off in his attentions. His passion grew cruel, and the ease of his conquest led him to undervalue its acquisition. Every day he came later and later, and his stay with the flower grew more and more shortened on each return. Her feeling perceived the estrangement long before her reason had taught her to think upon or understand it. At length she murmured her reproaches, and the grievance must be great when love will venture so far. Wherefore, she said, oh, wherefore hast thou lingered so long? Why dost thou not now, as before, vie with the sunlight in thy advances? I have looked for thee from the dawning. Yet I have looked for thee in vain. The yellow beetle has been all the morning buzzing about me, but I frowned upon his approaches. The green grasshopper had a song under my bush, and told me a dull story of the love which he had for me in his bosom. And more than once the glittering hummingbird has sought my embraces, but I shut my leaves against him. Thou hast been slow to seek me, thou whom I have looked to see. Gaily, then the butterfly replied to these reproaches, nor as he spoke heeded the increasing paleness of the flower. Over a thousand forests I've been flying, each as beautiful as this. On a thousand flowers I've been tending, none less lovely to the sight than thou. How couldst thou dream that with a golden ringlet, broad and free and beautiful like mine, in a single spot I still could linger, of the world unknowing aught. No, no, mine is an excursive spirit, for a thousand free affections made. Wouldst thou have me, like groping spiders, working still to girdle in myself? It was a murmuring and sad reply of the now isolated flower, and lived not long after it had made it. Ah! Now I know, mine error, having no wings myself to mate with the lover who had. Alas, that I loved so fondly and foolishly, for while thou hast gone over a thousand forests, seeing a thousand flowers, 
I have only known, only looked, only lived for a single butterfly. The false one was soon away after this to another forest, for his ear loved no reproaches, and he had sense, if not feeling enough, to see that they were uttered justly. The flower noted its departure, and its last sigh was an audible warning to the young bud it left behind it. The wood spirit heard the sigh and the warning, and when the bud began to expand in the pleasant sunshine, he persuaded the black-browed spider to spin his web and frame his nest in the thick bushes that hung around it. And many were the wanton butterflies after this, who, coming to prey upon her innocent affection, became entangled and justly perished in the guardian network thus raised up to protect it. End of Section 8 Read by Janice McNally, Toronto, Canada, October 2021Section 9 of The Rover, Volume 1, Number 25. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rover, Volume 1, Number 25, edited by Siva Smith and Lawrence Labrie. Section 9. The Pirate's Retreat by S. B. Beckett. There was an old man and a quite man, and by the fire sat he, and now said he to you, I'll tell things passing strange that once befell a ship upon the sea, Mary Howitt. There she is, Ricardo, said I to my friend as we reached the end of the pier in Havana while the dart lay about half a mile off the shore what think you of her beautiful a more symmetrical craft never passed the morrow so thought i and my heart responded with a thrill of pride to the sentiment how saucy she looked with her gay streamers abroad upon the winds and the red striped flag of the union floating jauntily at the main peak with her lofty masts tapering away till relieved against the blue abyss they were apparently diminished to the size of willow wands while the slight ropes that supported the upper spars seemed from the pier like the fairy tracery of the spider although surrounded by ships zebecs brigantines polcrees galleys and galliots from almost every clime in christendom she stood up conspicuously among them all an apt representative of the land whence she came but let us take a nearer view of the beauty the hall was long low and at the bows almost as sharp as the missile after which she was named from the waist to the stern she tapered away in the most graceful proportions and she had as lovely a run as ever slid over the dancing billows light and graceful as a seabird she rocked on the undulating water but her rig herein to my thinking was her chiefest beauty everything pertaining to it was so exact so even and so tanto besides the sail usually carried by man-of-war schooners she had the requisite appurtenances 
for a royal and flying kite or a sky sail which now that she was in port were all rigged up not another vessel of her class in the navy could spread so much canvas to the influence of old boreas as the dart her armament consisted of one long brass twenty-four pounder mounted on a revolving carriage midships and six twelve pound carronades add to this a picked crew of ninety men with the redoubtable jonathan west as our captain mr dacre dacres as first and your humble servant ahasuerus hackensack as second lieutenant besides a posse of minor officers and middies and you may form a faint idea of the dart bidding adieu to my friend i jumped into the pinnace waiting and in a few minutes stood on her quarter-deck but it will be necessary for me to explain for what purpose the dart was here she had been dispatched by government to cruise among the leeward islands and about cape san antonio in quest of a daring band of pirates who trusting to their superior prowess and the fleetness of their vessel a schooner called the sea sprite had long scourged the merchantmen of the indian seas with impunity cruiser after cruiser had been sent out to attack them in vain she had invariably escaped until at length in reality they were left for a while the undisputed rulers of the waves as they vauntingly styled themselves it was said of the sea sprite that she was as fleet as the winds and as mysterious in her movements and her master spirit the fierce juan piesta was as wily and fierce a robber as ever prowled upon the western waters indeed so wonderful and various had been his escapes that many of the spaniards and the lower orders of seamen in general believed him to be leagued with the powers of darkness but the dart had been fitted up for the present cruise expressly on account of her matchless speed and our captain generally known in the service by the significant appellation of old satan west was in a situation where fighting or peril formed any part of the story a full match for his namesake after cruising about the western extremity of cuba for nearly a month to no purpose we bore away for the southern coast of san domingo and at the time my story opens were off jacamel the morning was heralded onward by troops of clouds of the most brilliant burning hues deep crimson ridges fire-fringed volumes of purple hanging far in the depths of the mild and beautiful heaven long rose-tinted and golden plumes stretching up from the horizon to the zenith forming altogether a most gorgeous and magnificent spectacle while to complete the pageant the sun just rising from his ocean lair shed a flood of glaring light far over the restless expanse toward us and every rope and spar of our vessel begemmed with bright dew-drops flashed and twinkled in his beams like the jewelled robes of a princely bride for top there what's that away in the wake of the sun called out mr dacres a drifting spar i believe sir but the sun throws such a glare on the water i cannot see plainly i looked in the direction pointed out and saw a dark object tumbling about on the fiery swell like an evil spirit in torment we altered our course and stood away toward it it turned out to be a boat apparently empty but on a nearer inspection we perceived a man lying under its thwarts whose pale lank features and sunken eye bespoke him as suffering the last pangs of starvation 
my surprise can be better imagined than described on discovering in the unfortunate man a highly loved companion of my boyhood frederick percy he was transferred from his miserable quarters to a snug berth on board of the dart and in a few hours by the judicious management of our surgeon was resuscitated so as to be able to come on deck his story may be told in a few words he had been travelling in england while there had married a beautiful but friendless orphan soon after this occurrence he embarked in one of his father's ships for philadelphia intending to touch at san domingo city and take in a freight but three days before when within a few hours sail of their destined port they had fallen in with a piratical schooner which after a short struggle succeeded in capturing them while protecting his wife from the insults of the buccaneers he received a blow in the temple which deprived him of his senses and when he awoke to consciousness it was night wild and dark and he was tossing on the lone sea without provisions sails or oars as we had found him for three days he had not tasted food poor fellow his anxiety as to the fate of his wife almost drove him to distraction this circumstance assured us that we were on the right trail of the marauder whom we sought we continued beating up the coast till noon when the breeze died away into a dead calm and we lay rolling on the long glossy swell about ten leagues from the san domingo shore the sun was intensely powerful glowing through the hazy atmosphere directly over our heads like a red-hot cannon-ball and the far-stretching main was as sultry and arid as the sands of an african desert to the north the cloud-top mountains of san domingo obstructed our view looming through the blue haze to an immense height presenting to us the aspect of huge flat shadowy walls and one need have taxed his imagination but lightly to fancying them the boundaries dividing us from a brighter and a better clime the depths of the ocean were as translucent as an unobscured summer sky and far beneath us we could distinguish the dolphins and kingfish roaming leisurely about or darting hither and thither as some object attracted their pursuit while nearer its surface the blue element was alive with myriads of minor nondescripts wriggling flouncing and lazily moving up and down probably attracted by the shade of our dark hull the men having little else to do obtained from the captain permission to fish directly they had hauled in a dozen or more of the most ill-favoured shapeless unchristian-looking articles i ever clapped eyes on which when i came from aft were dancing their death jigs on the forecastle deck my attention was called away from this scene by the voice of the watch in the foretop announcing a sail in sight a faint indefinable speck could be seen in the quarter designated fluttering on the bosom of the blue sea like a drift of foam with the aid of a glass we made it out to be the topsail of a schooner so distant that her hull and lower sails were below the brim of the horizon her canvas had probably just been unloosened to the breeze which was directly after seen ruffling the face of the broad smooth expanse as it swept down toward us that glass mr waters she is standing toward us and by the gods of war the cut of her narrow flying royal looks marvellously like that of our friend the sea sprite said the captain while the blood flashed over his bald forehead like heat lightning over a summer cloud mr hackensack see that everything is ready for a chase the broad sails were unloosened and sheeted close home 
directly the wind was with us and we were bowling along under a press of canvas now quartermaster look to your sails as closely as you would watch one seeking your life another squint through the glass ha they have suspected us and are standing in toward the land jam on the wind let them look to it sharply it must be a fleet pair of heels that can keep pace with the dart though to say the least of yonder cruiser she is no laggard after pacing the deck some ten minutes he again hove short and lifted the glass to his eye by heavens the little witch still holds her way with us have the skysail set and rig out the top-gallant studden sail every one on board was now eager in the chase the orders were obeyed almost as soon as given our proud vessel under the press of sail absolutely flew over the water haughtily tossing the rampant surges from her sides while her bows were buried in a roaring and swirling sheet of foam and a broad belt of snow stretched far over the dark blue waist astern showing a wake as straight as an arrow she was careened down to the breeze so that her lower studden sail-boom every moment dashed a cloud of spray from the romping billows and her lee rail was at times under water her masts curved and whiffled beneath the immense plies of canvas like a stringed bow she walks the waters bravely said the captain casting a glance of exultation at the distended sails and bending spars and then at our arrowy wake but by jupiter the chase still almost holds her way with us we need more sail aft bear a hand my men and run up the ring tail that will answer a dolphin would have a sweat to beat us in this trim well mr percy is yonder dash of the craft that pillaged your ship and sent you cruising about the ocean in that bit of a cockle-shell think you that is the pirate schooner i cannot mistake her replied percy who stood with his flashing eyes riveted on the vessel and his fingers impatiently working about the hilt of his cutlass while his brow was darkened with an intense desire of revenge three hours passed and we had gained within a league of the noble craft she was heeled down to the breeze so that owing to the bagging of her lower sails her hull was almost hidden from sight like a snowy cloud she darted along the revelling waters the sunbeams basking on her wide-spread wings and the sprightly billows flashing and surging around her bows never saw i an object more beautiful the land was now fully in sight a stern and rock-bound coast against which the breakers dashed with maddening violence and for half a mile from the shore the water was one conflicting waste of snowy surf and billow no signs of inhabitants on either hand as far as the eye could view were discernible the long range of stern solitary mountains arose from the waves and towered away till lost in the clouds their sides save where some splintered cliff lifted its grey peaks in the day were clothed with thick forests among which the tufted palm and wild cinnamon stood up conspicuously like sentinels looking afar over the wide waste of blue here and there a torrent could be traced leaping from crag to cliff seeming as it blazed in the fierce sunlight to run liquid fire and gorgeous masses of wild creepers and tangled undergrowth hung down over the embattled heights swaying and flaunting in the gale like the banners and streamers of an encamped army not the slightest chance for harbour or anchorage could be discovered along the whole iron-bound coast yet the gallant little sea sprite held steadily on her course steering broad for the base of the mountains 
why in the name of madness is the fellow driving in among the breakers muttered our brave captain thinks he to escape by running into danger by mars and if i mistake not he shall have peril to his heart's content ere nightfall but fate willed that we should be disappointed for just as everything had been arranged to treat the buccaneer with a fist full of grape and canister one of those sudden tempests so common to the west indies in the autumn months was upon us a vast black conglomerated volume of vapour swung against the mountain summits and curled heavily down over the cliffs brilliant scintillations were darting from its shadowy borders and the zigzag lightnings were playing about it and licking its ragged folds like the tongue of an evil spirit suddenly it burst asunder and a burning gleam a wide conflagration as if the earth had exploded flashed over the hills accompanied with a peal of thunder that made the broad ocean tremble and our deck quiver under us like a harpooned grampus in his death grasp the electric fluid upheaved and hurled to fragments an immense peak near the summit of the mountains and huge masses of rock with thunderous din and amid clouds of dust smoke and fire came bounding and racing down from crag to crag uprooting the tall cedars and dashing to splinters the firm ironwood trees as though they had been but reeds sweeping a wide path of ruin through the thick forests and shivering to atoms and dust the loose rocks that obstructed their career till with a whirring bound they plunged from a beetling cliff into the sea causing the tortured waters to send up a cloud of mist and spray all on board were struck aghast at the binding brilliancy of the flash and its terrible effects we were aroused to a sense of our situation by the clear sonorous voice of satan west whom nothing pertaining to earth could daunt calling all hands to take in sail instantly the trade wind ceased and a fearful death-like stillness ensued this was of short duration hardly were our sails stowed close when we saw the trees drawn upward twisted off and rent to pieces while a dense mass of leaves and broken branches whirled over the land and a wild deep wailing sound as of rushing wings filled the air foretelling the onset of the whirlwind the hurricane is upon us helm hard a weather thundered the captain but the dart was already lying on our beam ends heaving groaning and quivering throughout every timber in the fierce embrace of the tremendous blast after its first overpowering shock however the gallant craft slowly recovered and by dint of the strenuous exertions of our men she was got before the gale away she sprang like a frightened thing over the tormented and whitening surges completely shrouded in foam and spray a dense cloud murky as midnight spread over the face of the heavens where a moment before naught met the gazer's eye save the fleecy mackerel clouds drifting afar through its cerulean halls the blue lightnings gleamed the thunder boomed and rattled the black billows shook their flashing manes the whole firmament was in an uproar and amid the wild rout our little dart as a dry leaf in the autumn winds was borne about a very plaything in the eddying whirls of the frantic elements the tempest was as short-lived as it was sudden and as the schooner had sustained no material injury directly after it had abated she was under sail again when the rain cleared up in short every eye sought eagerly for the pirate craft she had vanished nothing met our view but the tossing and tumbling surges and the breaker-beaten coast if ever old satan west was taken aback it was then his brow darkened and a shadow 
of unutterable disappointment passed over his countenance gone by all that is mysterious and wonderful gone he muttered to himself escaped from my very grasp can there be truth in the wild tales told of her no no idiot to harbour the thought for a moment she is foundered but this was hardly probable as not the slightest vestige of her remained about the spot poor percy too was the picture of despair his head had been blown away by the hurricane and his hair tossed rudely in the wind as he stood in the main chains gazing with the wildness of a maniac over the uproarious waters the lovers of the marvellous would here find enough to fatten upon i ween said dacres composedly helping himself to a quid of tobacco what think you is to come next for i hardly think the play ends with actors and all being spirited away in a thunder gust i was interrupted in my reply by the energetic exclamations of the captain who had been gazing seaward over the quarter rail yes by all the imps in purgatory it is that devil-leagued pirate burst from his lips and at the same moment the cry of sail o was heard from the forward watch a long sparred vessel could be seen relieved against the black bank of clouds that were crowding down the horizon surprise was imaged on every countenance and when the order was passed to crowd all sail in pursuit a murmur of disapprobation run through the whole crew however such was their respect for the regulations of the service and so great their dread of old satan west that no one dared demur openly again the dart was bounding over the waves in pursuit of the stranger which confirmed our suspicions as to her character by hoisting all sail and endeavouring to escape us but here likewise we were disappointed she proved to be a baltimore clipper and had endeavoured to run away from us taking us for the same craft we had supposed her to be after parting from the baltimorean we ran in and as the evening fell anchored under the land sheltered from the waves by a little rocky promontory it was my turn to take the evening watch our weary crew were soon lost in sleep and all was hushed into repose if i except the shrill rasping voices of the green lizards the buzzing and humming of the numerous insects on shore and the occasional long-drawn creak of the cable as the schooner swung at her anchor the moon attended by one bright beautiful planet was on her wonted round through the heavens and the far expanse of ocean reflecting her effulgence seemed to roll in billows of molten silver beneath a gentle night wind which swept from the land fragrant with the breath of wild flowers and spicy shrubs little panto the royal reefer lay on a gun carriage near me this boy whom when on a former cruise i had rescued from a turkish trader was a favourite with all on board although in person effeminate and beautiful as a girl and possessing the strong affections of the weaker sex he still was not wanting in that high courage and energy which constitutes the pride of manhood he was an orphan and with the exception of a sister and aunt who were living together in england there was not in the whole wide world one being with whom he could claim relationship when very young he had been entrusted to the charge of the friendly captain of a merchant ship bound to smyrna for the purpose of improving his health but the vessel never reached the destined port she was captured by an algerine rover and the boy made prisoner it was from the worst of slavery that i had rescued him and ever after the occurrence his gratitude toward me knew no bounds he appeared to be contented and happy in his present situation save when his thoughts reverted to his lone sister 
then the tears would spring into his eyes and he would talk to me of her beauty and goodness till i was almost in love with the pure being which his glowing descriptions had conjured to my mind i loved that boy as a brother and he returned my affections with a fervour equalling that of a trusting woman as i leaned against the companionway absorbed in pleasant dreams of my far home a touch on the shoulder aroused me i turned and percy stood by my side the beauty of the evening had soothed his wild and agitated feelings he spoke of his wife with touching regret as if certain that she was lost to him for ever for nearly an hour he stood gazing on the moon's bright attendant as if he fancied it her home at length he disappeared below and again ponto who seemed to be wrapped in a deep reverie was my only companion we had remained several minutes in silence when suddenly as if it had dropped from the clouds a female form appeared far above us on a precipitous bluff that leaned out over the deep on which the solitary moonlight slept in unobstructed brightness the form advanced so near the brink of the fearful crag that we could even distinguish the colour of her drapery as it fluttered in the wind by the motion of her arms she seemed beckoning us on shore then as if despairing to attract her attention she looked fearfully about and the next moment a strain of exquisite melody came floating down to us like a voice from heaven we remained breathless and could almost distinguish the words the strain terminated in a startling cry and with a frantic gesture the figure tore a crimson scarf from her neck and shook it wildly on the winds at the same moment the dark form of a man leaped on the cliff there was a short struggle with reiterated shrieks of help 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 in a voice of agony and all disappeared in the deep shadow of another rock ponto who at the first burst of the song had started up and grasped my arm with a degree of wild energy i had never witnessed in him before now suddenly released his hold and with a single bound plunged into the sea so lost was i in amazement at the whole scene that for a moment i remained undecided what course to pursue then not wishing to alarm the ship i ordered waters the midshipman of the watch to jump into the boat with a few of the men and pull after him the head of my little favourite soon became visible in the moonlight with a vigorous arm he struck out for the shore and was immediately hid in the deep shadow of its mural cliffs a moment and i again saw him on the beetling rocks whence the female had just disappeared then he too was lost in the darkness waters after being absent in the boat about half an hour returned without having discovered the least sign of the fugitive hour after hour i awaited the return of my adventurous boy filled with painful anxiety as the night deepened the clouds which during the day had slumbered on the mountain battlements as if held in awe by the majesty of the burning sun rolled slowly down the steeps and gradually spread out on the sea enveloping us in their humid embrace a denser mist i never saw my thin clothing was soon wet through and clinging to me like steel to a magnet and we were completely lost in darkness as i paced the deck not willing to go below while my young favourite was in peril waters tapped me on the shoulder did you notice anything then mr hackensack i thought i heard a splash in the water like the dip of an oar some fish i suppose waters i think not sir besides just now i saw a dark object gliding slowly across our bow in the mist which i then took for a drifting log i walked round the deck and peered into the fog on every side but could discern nothing i listened all was silent save the tweet tweet of the lizards and the roar of the surf as it beat on the rocks astern presently old benjamin ramrod the gunner came aft 
i wish this infernal fog would clear up said he for the last half-hour i have heard strange noises about us i am much mistaken or we are surrounded by enemies of some sort or other when that shining apparition arose from the bluff there and began to beckon to us i said to myself some accident is going to happen before many hours and you see if my prognostics aren't true mind you how by her sweet voice she lured that poor boy ponto overboard and even i who may say i've had some experience in such matters began to feel a queerish sensation as i hearkened to her witchery many a poor sailor has lost his life by listening to their lonesome like songs i remember once when i was on the coast of africa in a gold dust and ivory trader we heard the water wraiths and mermaids singing to each other all night long and the very next day our ship was driven upon the rocks in a white squall and wrecked on and only myself and a congo nigger escaped alive out of a crew of twenty-three it strikes me too he continued after listening a moment that we shall have a storm before morning the fog seems to be brushing by us and the noise of the breakers on shore grows terribly loud i would give all the prize money i ever gained to be out of the place with good sea room a flowing sheet and our bows turned toward home no good ever came of fighting these pirate imps heaven help us what is that he exclaimed with a start as a tall white form shot up a few rods under our stern seen but dimly through the fog the fact flashed upon me at once our cable had been cut it was the spray of the breakers rebounding from the shore the best bower anchor was instantly let go which brought us up not however till we had drifted to within a cable's end of the breakers which ramped and roared all the night with maddening violence as if eager to engulf us the alarm was given and in a few minutes everything was prepared for any emergency that might occur i ordered ramrod to clap a charge of grape into one of the bow chasers and let drive at the first object that came in sight as i gave the order the dip of oars could be plainly distinguished receding from our bows benjamin did not wait to see the marauders but fired in the direction of the sound the fog was swept away before the mouth of the gun to some distance and i caught a glimpse of a boat filled with men a deep groan told that the gun had been rightly directed there was now no doubt that we were surrounded by enemies it was only by the foreboding watchfulness of the gunner that we were prevented from going ashore where doubtless the pirates expected to have obtained an easy victory over us about ten minutes after this incident i was startled by the faint voice of ponto hailing me from under the schooner's side i joyfully lowered the man-rope and immediately had the adventurous boy beside me on the quarter-deck he grasped my hand and i felt him tremble all over with eagerness you heard that song the voice was that of my own sister that shriek too was hers do you wonder that i leaped overboard i scarcely knew how i reached the rock from which she was dragged i climbed up and up in the direction i suppose they must have taken until i gained the very summit of one of the hills i looked down and as it were floating in the haze many feet below me i saw the face of a rock reddened by the blaze of a fire opposite i clambered from cliff to cliff clinging to the branches of the trees and letting myself down by the mountain creepers that hung like thick drapery over the descent till all at once i dropped over the very mouth of a deep cavern a massy vine fell in heavy festoons down over the rugged pillars that formed its portal securing a foothold among its tendrils concealed by its luxuriant foliage i bent over and looked in a large party of fierce-looking men 
with pistols in their belts and cutlasses lying by them were seated round a rude table feasting and making merry over their wine beakers i paid little attention to them for against the rough wall was an old woman and leaning upon her as i lived it is true was my own my beautiful sister she whom i had left in england i thought my heart would have choked me as i looked upon her pale sorrowful face and heard her low sobs in my tremor the vine shook some loose stones were started and went clattering down into the very mouth of the cavern two of the pirates sprang up and seizing a flaming brand rushed out the red blaze flashed over her face as they passed and i heard them threaten her with a terrible fate if they were discovered through her means at the first start of the rock i drew back into the vines where i remained breathless and still while they scanned the recesses of the crag we were mistaken jacopo at length said one it was probably a guana drawn hither by the fire satisfied that no one was near they returned to their comrades who ridiculed them for their temerity again i listened and heard them plan to cut the cable of the dart and run her into the breakers if they failed in this attempt they were to haul the sea sprite out of her hiding-place and leave the coast trusting with the aid of the fresh land breeze to get beyond pursuit before daybreak the mist had come on and knowing it impossible to reach the dart over the rough precipices in time to give you warning i remained in my concealment undecided what course to pursue when i saw a party of the pirates leave the cavern to go to their boats perceiving beneath me on the bow of a wild tamarind sundry articles of clothing similar to those worn by the buccaneers a bold thought occurred to me when they had gone beyond the light from the cave i cautiously lowered myself down and drawing on a jacket and one of the caps jumped with them into the boat no one in the darkness suspecting me to appearance we were in the very heart of the mountains i am certain that rocks and foliage were piled up all around after a short row we passed through what seemed to be a deep chasm between two crags which must have been very high as the darkness between them was almost palpable and in a few moments we were riding over the long swell of the open sea we groped about in the mist for some time till the position of the dart was ascertained by the chafing noise of one of her booms when gliding softly up with their sharp knives they cut her cable and she began to drift astern the strictest silence was enjoined upon us all so that had i moved or made the least noise as i had intended my life had been the forfeit however i had just made up my mind to run all hazards when the flame of the gun gleamed through the fog one of the pirates fell dead in the bottom of the boat and in the hurried stir which this produced i contrived to slip into the water now let me conjure you to take measures for the rescue of my poor sister how she came into their power is a mystery but my heart will break if she is not soon freed from these lawless men i informed the captain of ponto's discovery but he saw at once that it would be madness to attempt anything in our present situation with sunken rocks around us the breakers astern and a thick mist wrapping all in obscurity at last after a night of the most wearisome watching the day dawned and the mists returned to their mountain fastnesses burning for a brush with the desperadoes we towed the dart out of her critical situation and got her under sail the launch and cutter were ordered out but here we were at fault the morning sunlight slept calmly on the forest-clad ridges and grey cliffs and every irregularity and indentation of the shore were strongly shadowed forth but not the least sign of harbour or anchorage could be seen except under the rocky promontory we had just left and everything looked as forsaken and solitary as at creation's birth however not doubting that we should be able to sift 
the mystery the boats put off with full and well-armed crews and on nearing the shore discovered a narrow inlet that wound in between two lofty cliffs the one projecting out with a magnificent curve so as entirely to conceal the channel until we approached within a few rods of the shore we've got on the right scent of the old fox now i think said waters speak low gentlemen if discovered we may meet with a reception here not altogether so agreeable i don't like the appearance of those grave-looking fellows yonder said dacres pointing to four cannon mounted on a low parapet with their muzzles bearing directly toward us why the place is as silent as a graveyard muttered the old coxswain of the cutter we advanced softly up the inlet and found it to branch out into a broad basin here was explained the mystery of the sea sprite's sudden disappearance this was the pirate's retreat and from their escaping hither and into similar resorts known only to themselves arose the many wild stories that were abroad respecting their supernatural prowess fifty well-armed men might have defended the place against five hundred assailants as there was only one point of the inlet susceptible of an attack the entrance was not more than thirty feet in width only sufficient for one vessel to enter at a time but the water was bold and deep with a sandy bottom an enormous cavern yawned at the farther extremity of the basin which ponto immediately recognized as that where the pirates held their revel the previous night but now the place was evidently deserted the sea sprite had made her escape the crew of the barge were dispatched on shore to explore the premises while we as a corps de reserve lay on our oars with our firearms loaded ready for an emergency while waiting i had an opportunity of surveying the magnificent scene around me we lay in the dead shadow of a beetling precipice of such immense altitude that the snow-white morning clouds as they floated onward like messengers from heaven swept its summit thousands of gray seabirds were sailing around their iris along its dark craggy sides far above us while its hollow recesses reverberated their shrill cries till to our ears they sounded like one continued dream the cliffs all around were tumbled about in the most chaotic confusion as if they had been upheaved by some tremendous throw of nature stinted forest trees and brushwood with here and there a wild locust or a banana had gained a footing in the seams and fissures of the crags and thick masses of the lusty mountain creepers intertwined with wild flowering jessamine and grenadilla fell in gorgeous festoons down the embattled heights draping their rough projections in robes of the most magnificent woof nearly opposite was a yawning ravine filled with myriads of huge shattered trees rugged stumps loose stones and gravel which probably had been swept from the mountains by the foaming torrents that rushed down to the sea in the rainy months the desolation of this scene was in a measure relieved by the quick springing vegetation that had found sustenance among the decayed trunks and in the black earth that still adhered to the matted roots so that green foliage and wild flowers of the most brilliant dyes in sumptuous profusions were waving and nodding over prostrate trees which perchance a year before had stood up in the pride of primeval lustihood on the mountain ridges further back beyond this gorge the sloping steps were clothed with dark waving forests stretching up their sides till they faded into the blue haze resting on the mountain summits the freshness of early day had not yet been dissipated among the undergrowth and brakes on the tips of the tall sweeping guinea grass and in the cups of the wildflowers the pure dews hung in glittering globules sparkling with brilliant prismatic tints as they flashed back 
the glances of the rising sun calmness and repose reigned over the unequalled sublimities of the place and although the billows were madly beating and roaring against the outer base of the crescent-like promontory within the water was silent and unruffled by a breath reflecting in its depths the wild and gorgeous array of rock and verdure around almost as unwavering as reality itself and had it not been for the tiny wavelets that rippled up a small sandy beach adorning the water's edge with a narrow frill of foam its likeness to a broad sheet of glass had been perfect at length after the premises had been thoroughly reconnoitred the crew of the cutter were permitted to go on shore they were soon revelling amidst the costly merchandise and the luxuries with which the cavern was gorged hello price said waters to a fellow mid as he came out of the cave dragging an old hag of a woman after him apparently much against her will i found the presiding goddess of the place isn't she a venus venus indeed echoed the old beldam take that young madcap and learn better how to treat a lady administering a thwack on his ear that sent him staggering a rod from her waters gathered himself together and a general laugh took place at his expense a fair representative of the amorous goddess quite liberal with her love pats said price in a tantalizing tone confound the old hag muttered the discomfited mid if it were not a waste of good powder and ball i'd make a riddle of her in the twinkling of a grog can this female and one man found wounded and languishing on his pallet were the only denizens of the place croesus what haven't we here exclaimed price glancing over the medley of rich merchandise heaped together in one of the apartments of the huge cavern boxes of silks and satins sashes ribbons lace tortoise shell woo i say waters what heathens are these pirates to let such a profusion of pretty jujaws lie here which ought to be setting off the fairy forms of the spanish lasses now there's as handsome a piece of trumpery as one often sees tying a delicate crimson silk manta about him as i'm a sinner i'll carry that home to nell gray ha burgundy wine inspiring divine is the gush of bright wine tis the life tis the breath of the soul tis the the odds but i must quicken my memory and clear my pipes with a can of the critter to get into the spirit of song he drew a beaker from the cask and took a deep draught capital by bacchus he exclaimed smacking his lips try it brothers these fellows fare like princes bear a hand mr price and don't set the men a bad example thundered the first lieutenant who had stationed himself as a sentinel outside in the meantime the men had not been idle the sight of such a profusion of riches all at their own mercy had turned their brains and the confusion that prevailed among the silks and finery would have rivalled that of a london milliner's shop on a gala day but the voice of the lieutenant as if by magic restored them to order and waters ordered the most costly of the goods to be carried to the boats and ain't it rory mcgran has found a nest of the shiners exclaimed a son of erin as he emerged covered with dirt from a small deep cavity at the inmost extremity of the cavern dragging after him a large bag of doubloons ain't them the beauties mr waters it's what they're as plenty there as parities in a parson's cellar half a dozen similar bags were brought to light besides which more than a score of boxes containing rick's dollars and a great many parcels of coins of different nations gold and silver tied up in old pieces of canvas were discovered some sport in sacking such a fortress as this observed price no blood and plenty of booty 
by jove though what a confounded pity it is we haven't a ship of some size that we may load it with these silken goods our share of the prize money would be a fortune to us while the men were ransacking the cavern i had climbed by a narrow footpath to the top of a lofty bluff a small telescope found in a hollow that had been worked in a rock assured me that this served as a lookout station it commanded a wide view of the surrounding ocean now tenanted only by the sunbeam and solitude if i accept the presence of the dart which sat lilting on the glittering swell with her white wings outspread like a huge sea-bird stretching his pinions for flight the boats shoved off loaded gunwale deep with gold and silver ivory tortoise shell and the most choice of the merchandise found in the cavern and in fifteen minutes all was safely secured on board the schooner after a short consultation it was agreed on to run the dart into the pirates retreat and there await the return of the sea sprite deeming that the buccaneers would scarcely be long absent from the chief depository of their treasures she was soon safely anchored in the basin a lookout was stationed at the mouth of the inlet while ponto and percy undertook with the consent of the captain the task of watching from the cliff waters was then sent with a party of men to explore the cavern more thoroughly and before noon there was not a chink nor cranny of the place which had not been thrice overhauled immense treasures in gold silver and jewelry were brought to light toward the latter part of the afternoon percy gave the signal agreed upon for an approaching vessel and directly after made his appearance on the beach informing us that they had examined her carefully and that there could be no mistaking her it was the sea sprite strange said the captain i knew that they were brave fearless to desperation but i did not expect to see them show such foolhardiness however they shall meet with a welcome reception mr dacres see that all the men are on board and have things put to rights for a brush if i mistake not there will be desperate work ere the rascal receives his deserts in a few minutes everything was ready the boats were got out forward and the dart was towed to the mouth of the inlet remaining concealed the sea sprite which could be seen from the outer edge of the rocks stood gallantly in driving a drift of snow before her till within about a mile of the shore when as if she had discovered some signs of our presence she wore round hoisted her studden sails and stood away in a southwesterly direction pull away cheerily said the captain to the men in the boats who had lain on their oars in readiness slowly the dart emerged from her hiding-place the sails were squared round so as to present their broad surface to the wind and away she darted in swift pursuit like an eagle in quest of his prey a stern chase is proverbially a long one and so it proved in this instance the wind was light and although we hung out every rag of sail the sun was sinking beyond the sea when we approached within gunshot of the rover not a soul could be seen on her decks she was worked as if by magic mr ramrod said the captain clap a round shot into the long tom and let us see if we cannot make them show some signs of life benjamin loaded the gun and having got it in poised to his fancy applied the match away whizzed the iron messenger the chips flew from the stern of the rover and a swarm of grisly heads belonging to bona fide bodies popped above the bulwarks and then settled down again like so many wild sea-fowl disturbed in their nests well done benjamin i see you have not lost any of your skill for lack of practice the pirate at length finding it impossible to escape us shortened sail now my men said the captain to your duty let every gun be double shotted round shot and grape 
by a well-timed manoeuvre we ranged up under her stern our men stood with their arms extended ready to apply their lighted matches fire thundered satan west a storm of flame burst from our side and the dart reeled half out of the water under the recoil of the overloaded guns the iron shower raked the pirate fore and aft hurling those deadly missiles the splinters in every direction undoing terrible execution on their deck two more such broadsides would have sent her to the bottom helm a weather jam hard roared the captain ay ay sir and we wore round so as to present our other broadside to the enemy while this manoeuvre was going on the bows of the sea sprite had fallen off in the wind so as to bring us side by side within half pistol shot she returned the fire with a vengeance and several of our brave tars fell wounded or slain to the deck ready blaze away but the sound of our captain's voice was lost in the thunder of the heavy ordnance the battle now commenced in real earnest the cannon bellowed small arms rattled the combatants yelled the dying groaned the iron thunderbolt crashed driving the vessel's oaken timbers and a dense sulphur cloud overspread the scene of furious commotion so that we fought with an invisible enemy we could see nothing save the streaming lightning of the cannon or the fiend-like figures that worked our aftermost guns begrimed with powder and blood stripped nearly naked and sweltering in their eager toil as the smoke occasionally lifted however the battered bulwarks of the enemy and the glimmering streaks along her black waist showed that our fire had been rightly directed and the irregularity with which it was returned told the confusion that prevailed on her decks several times we attempted to run her aboard but they discovered our intentions in time to avoid us at length a discharge from the well-directed gun of old benjamin took effect on her foretop the topmast came thundering down with all its rigging over the foresail having thus lost the benefit of her headsail she rounded to and her jib-boom came in contact with our fore-rigging now is our time into her borders roared dacres leaping on the pirate's forecastle deck but the order was useless they were already hard on his track a close and desperate struggle now took place pistols cracked sabres gleamed and deadly blows were dealt on either side till a rampart of slain and wounded was raised high between the furious combatants gloomy and dark as an arch-fiend the pirate leader raged among the his men urging them on with threats and curses in a voice of thunder and sweeping down all opposition before his dripping blade but dacres backed by his well-trained boarders received them on the points of their pikes with a coolness and bravery that made them recoil upon each other like surges from a rock-ribbed coast thus the fight continued with various success till the attention of the buccaneers was arrested by an unearthly shout in the rear and the tall figure of percy was seen laying about him with whirlwind impetuosity his long untrimmed hair flying wildly in the commotion of the atmosphere his features working with the madness that controlled him and his dilated eyes flashing with a fierce unnatural fire upon his opponents all quailed before him wherever his merciless arm fell there was an instant vacancy although a score of cutlasses were glancing meteor-like around his person as if by spell he remained uninjured at length his eye detected the pirate leader dashing aside all before him with one bound he was at his side the fierce chief stared in amazement at the sight of him whom he supposed many a league from the spot if not dead but quickly recovered his stern and glooming bearing monster where is she shouted percy ask the sharks replied the captain lunging at him with his sabre these were his last words percy quick as thought drew a pistol from his belt and fired into his face he fell heavily to the deck and the combatants closed around him as tempest waves close over a foundering ship 
the pirates now that their leader was slain fought with less spirit and the victory was soon decided in our favor sooth to say it was dearly earned and many who sought the battle with a quickened pulse and eager for the struck were that evening consigned to the waves of all the pirates crew consisting of nearly a hundred men but thirteen remained unharmed heavens what a ghastly spectacle her decks presented fifty stalwart forms lay here stiffened in death or writhing in the agony of their deep wounds severed and mangled in every way imaginable and so slippery was the main deck that we could hardly cross it while the sea all around us was dyed with the red waters of life that gushed in a continuous stream from her scuppers on the forecastle deck where the last desperate struggle had taken place i recognized many of our own crew among the lifeless heaps poor old ramrod the gunner lay there with the black blood trickling over his swarthy brow from a bullet hole in his temple he had died while the might of the battle was yet upon him and the fierce scowl which he darted at his foes still remained on his rigid features his hand even in the agonies of death had not relinquished its firm grasp on his cutlass and the gigantic form of a swart pirate with his skull cloven down close at hand showed that it had been swayed to some purpose poor benjamin i could have wept over him he had been in the service from his earliest days and the scars of many a sanguinary fight were visible upon his muscular arms and on his bronzed and powerful chest my brave boy ponto was there too hanging pale and wounded over the bridge of the bow gun he had followed me when we boarded like a young tiger robbed of its mate although faint and helpless with the loss of blood which belched at every heave of his bosom from a deep sabre wound in his shoulder and which had completely saturated his checked shirt and his duck pantaloons yet his firmness was unshaken i ordered one of our men to take charge of him until he could be looked to by the surgeon not yet faintly exclaimed the generous child pointing to mengs the boatswain who lay wounded over a coil of the cable with three or four grim-looking buccaneers stretched dead across his chest the blood from their wounds streaming into his face and neck look to him first he may be suffocated no no youngster murmured the hardy briton i'd do very well till my turn comes if i had this ugly-looking craft cast off from my gun-deck and a can of water stowed away in my cable tier after the prisoners were secured i sought the cabin where i had ordered ponto to be carried it was a richly garnished room with berth hangings of crimson damask and amber coloured silk a gorgeous carpet from the looms of brussels and furniture in keeping opposite the companion way hung a superb picture of the virgin mother and her infant and over it a golden crucifix while beneath on a rosewood table lay a guitar implements for sketching and various articles for female employment and amusement indeed one might have supposed himself entering the boudoir of a delicate spanish belle rather than the domicile of a lawless rover this i remember from the glance of a moment my attention was drawn to the occupants of the place there lay my wounded boy by the side of a silken sofa couch his face buried in the garments of a female stretched lifeless upon it and over them bent the tall form of percy gazing upon the group with a fixed vacant stare which told that suffering could wring his soul no longer desolation and madness had come upon him his attitude the expression of his features and the low convulsive sobs and broken murmurs of the boy at once explained the scene the one had found a wife the other a sister in that inanimate form i advanced near in hopes that life might not be altogether extinct the pale dead face upon which the mellow radiance of sunset streamed through the skylight was lovely as a seraph's 
her eyes were closed as if in sleep the long braids of her bright hair lay undisturbed upon her marble forehead and there was no appearance of violence save where the sea-green silk had been torn back from her bosom as if in her dying agonies displaying a dark puncture as of a grape-shot below the snowy swell of the throat from which the crimson blood oozed slowly trickling down over her white and rounded shoulder she had probably been killed by our first raking broadside fire fire shouted a dozen voices on deck i sprang up the companionway the forehatch had been removed and a dense volume of smoke was rolling up from below a glance was sufficient to show that no effort of ours could save the vessel and preparations were speedily made to rescue the wounded and abandon her to her fate it being impossible for me to leave my duty on deck i sent a trusty hibernian to rescue my helpless boy and to inform percy of our situation he returned with a rueful countenance a cone mr hackensack said the tender-hearted fellow it almost made the salt weather come until my een to see the poor man and the beautiful kilt leddy and when i tuned em as how the schooner was burnin and would be blown to jericho in a twinkling all he said was to give me a terrible ferocious like scowl and point with a loaded pistol to the companion so i took his manin and left him two messengers sent to take him away by force met with no better success the flame was ready to burst out on every side and from each chink and crevice around the hatches which had been replaced and barred down the smoke was darting up with the force of vapour from a steam engine the deck had become so heated that it was painful to stand upon it the fire was fast progressing toward the run where the magazine was situated thrice had the order been given to quit the burning vessel but i could not forsake my friend without one more effort to rescue him from the terrible fate that awaited him if left behind he still held the loaded pistol in his hand and sternly forbade my approach poor ponto had fainted from grief and loss of blood and lay across his sister's body i sprang forward and raised him in my arms regardless of the maniac's threats the pistol banged in my ear but fortunately the ball passed over me as i stooped and i regained the companion way without injury by this time he had drawn another from his belt put away the pistol and come with me i urged the vessel is on fire and will soon be blown to atoms he looked at me with a grim stare for a moment then burst into an idiotic laugh that wild laugh is still ringing in my brain ha 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 fire fire here it is writhing and coiling here here dashing his hand against his forehead perceiving that it was vain to reason with his madness and fearing for the life of the wounded boy in my arms i reluctantly left the hapless man to his fate the boat had already put off for the last time but i succeeded in prevailing on them to return and leaping in soon reached the dart in safety the night set in wild and black as death departed and ragged masses of cloud were rushing over the face of the heavens where once again the soaring moon and that same bright solitary star which showed their faces through the reeling rack apparently flying from the scene of turmoil and death the increasing wind howled mournfully through the rigging and our battered hull staggered along the inky main writhing and shuddering on the surge like a weary wounded thing we followed in the track of the burning vessel as she fled along before the gale awaiting in breathless suspense the consummation of her wild career the black smoke interfulgent with tortuous tongues of lurid fire rolled in immense volumes over her the red flames darted up her masts along the spars and rigging and gushed in swirling sheets from her ports and bulwarks 
while in their fierce screams the billows that ramped and raved about her glowed like a huge seething cauldron of molten iron and the gloomy clouds that lowered above were tinged in their ragged borders as with blood occasionally the jarring thunder of her cannon as they became heated to explosion announced to us the progress of the insidious destroyer but still a more thrilling spectacle awaited us in the height of the conflagration hapless percy bearing his dead wife in his arms emerged as it were from the very midst of the flames and took a stand on the companionway so strongly was the tall dark figure relieved against the glowing element that his slightest gesture could not escape our scrutiny while with one arm he spanned the waist of the supple corpse which apparently struggled to escape from his grasp he waved the other on high as if exulting in the whirl and commotion around him he seemed like the minister of some dark rite of heathenism preparing to offer up a victim to the moloch of his superstition at length arrived the dreadful moment the black hole seemed to be lifted bodily out of the water a volume of smoke burst over her like the first eruption from a volcano a spire of flame shot up to the heavens filling the firmament with burning fragments while the clouds that overhung the sea were torn and scattered by the tremendous concussion a crash followed deep bellowing boom as if the solid globe had split asunder then all was darkness dreary void silent as death End of section nine section ten of the rover volume one number twenty five this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox dot org the rover volume one number twenty five edited by seba smith and lawrence labrie section ten letters from town to country messieurs editors i assure you it is the voice of nature which has prompted these letters and as power said here is the only voice which never told a lie and truth is never out of place when not too prosaic i am aware that you literary men look with a jealous eye upon the productions of nameless ones but should you make an exception in my behalf and accept the within and open the door of, to a humble lodger i should be very happy to continue a permanent boarder and aid you in providing good entertainment i pray you however do not visit the sins of the father upon his offspring although it be not a sinless child i am unknown to you although somewhat familiar with other quarters this you may think egotism but i think the work of the brain should be treated in the same way as that of the hands to wit if good use it however if you kick me out i shall as in duty bound to my superiors kiss the rod and remain your obedient servant j matter of fact p s when my grey goose canters i know not where to stop so your printers can put a colon etc as well as you if you please a long period to my effusions j m o f 
my dear colonel let me open the window august is hot to-day and beside the people are returning from church i must watch them for after three months seclusion in the country one naturally returns to bustle and activity a glass of soda-water has given me relief it is a great thing for authors to be warmed with their subject but to be subjected themselves to other heat neutralizes all the good effects of the former i strolled down broadway last evening it was quite full the late rains have given the residents at the springs too much water and the boats down are as much crowded as those were who headed up some months ago for the past two or three weeks the milliners and apprentices have held possession of the promenade now they are leaving for the bowery truly we are republicans have we not a dollar side to our streets and a sixpenny also do we not rather roast upon the former than be seen loitering in the shade upon the latter strange that notoriety and obscurity should be only one step from each other i wish you to visit gotham before the ice-cream season is past there is a delightful reminiscence of moorish times to be found just opposite the site of the old log cabin it is called the alhambra floor of marble immense canopy of blue fountain in the centre etc etc but you must see for yourself it is one of the things which keep new york from being forgotten during the reign of the dog star i stepped in the aforesaid moorish pavilion the other evening and while discussing the merits of a roman heard the following conversation gent number one to gent number two will you sir please lift your chair from this lady's dress gent number two affecting not to hear request repeated and this time answered gent number one growling in a sotto voce they say this is a remnant of moorish times i find nothing but boorish manners there is every prospect of a splendid theatrical season simpson and europe is securing several stars among whom macready is mentioned in anticipation of so distinguished an arrival the princely owners of the park have been repairing and refitting lord knows it needed it for while the arts flourished within they languished without and the lamp-post seemed running a race with the front wall as to which would be in ruins first the amount is they have both lost lost the bet but gained fresh looks after all mitchell is the man for me while the legitimate drama is moonstruck by the stars we may as well have the best and most unique of the illegitimate which can be furnished and mitchell is the best furnishing undertaker in that line you as well as i have enjoyed ample proofs of his mirth-moving propensities and there is no need of expatiating farther upon that score how get you on with your gardening operations faith if you had any weeds left for future battle the last rain has drowned them all what an ignominious fate they met if such be the case drowned in the stocks nor left to float with the current how too is our little squirrel which i left you playing with at my last visit take good care of him 
i shot the mother and would have ended his career but he seemed to throw such a look of compassion upon me that i was compelled to forbear and so we reared him don't let him get into bad company keep him from the enticements of that pussy lucy long and the allurements of your pointer cupid he is too young depend upon it to suffer by the dart of the god give him a plentiful supply of nuts as they fall for he must not suffer in his confinement nutting is a pleasant task to any one i found it much more agreeable than eating the fruit as gathered by foreign hands he however may think differently and it is all the same whether you eat them or the squirrel except as the schoolboy says you will have a dyspepsia thereafter the cool weather will soon lay an embargo upon your boating excursions never mind the memory of the past will supply their place think of dear amy lee not the virtuous young market woman whose father went to his country seat at sing sing as mitchell hath it who always accompanied us upon the hudson think that you are still seated in the stern one hand grasping the rudder the other the tender white hand which proved a much better helm think too that i am seated rowing for your pleasure so far distant from the scene of your operations that i shall fail to mark the tender pressure and the sigh low breathed and the soft love whisper ah my dear colonel you were dreadfully mistaken when you thought there were no listeners sly dog as you were your waterman had better ears than cupid your pointer and heard every word never mind we are old friends and the secrets shall lie buried within the river which gave birth to them and it was that which gave them birth had there been no moon to ride in silver car over the rippling hudson no frowning palisades to inspire the romantic your bachelor timidity would never have found relief put that in your pipe and smoke it the whole letter if you will don't smoke me however at least until we have met once more as rovers at another issue ever yours jacob matter-of-fact loafer's lodge number august twentieth eighteen forty three end of section ten end of the rover volume one number twenty five edited by seba smith and lawrence labrie